welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 10th of August 2020 and this is episode 173. This is the last podcast for August as we will be taking our traditional summer break. We will resume normal service on the 7th of September 2020 when I talk to Professor Mark Connolly and Dr Stephen Gravel. Returning to today's podcast, I talked to Dr Michael Fremantle, a freelance science writer, about his book, The Chemist's War, 1914-1918, that looks at the role of chemists and chemistry during the Great War. I spoke to Michael on the telephone from his home in Basingstoke, Hampshire. Hi Michael, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yes, um, I'm a chemist. I, be, I have a PhD in chemistry. I'm a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry and uh, I've been a chemist all my professional life. I've taught chemistry at various levels here and abroad. I worked in the industry for two or three years and for the last 35 years I've been involved in journalism, writing and so on. I've written numerous articles, reports and quite a few books on chemistry and related topics. Uh, From 1985 to 1994, I was editor of Chemistry International. That's the news magazine of the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry. And then for the next 13 years, I was European science editor for Chemical Engineering News. That's the weekly news magazine of the uh, American Chemical Society. It's the most widely read chemistry magazine in the world. But I've always been interested in the history of science. I've written quite a few articles about various aspects of the history of chemistry and history of science in general. And I've always been interested in the Great War. Uh, I've read over the years, many years, I've read all the famous books like Old Soldiers Never Die by Frank Richards and Memoirs of an Infantry Officer by Siegfried Sassoon. I'm familiar with some of the poems by Wilfred Owen. And I watched quite a few TV documentaries on the Great War. But it wasn't until July 2009 that my wife and I decided to go visit the battlefields. So we drove across, we arranged uh, to meet our son, Dominic, and his family, and eat, but we so we drove across through the Channel Tunnel to eat. And whilst we were there looking around, our son had organised a tour around some of the sites. So we went to Tynecott, that's Passchendaele, uh, Sanctuary Wood, Essex Farms, and we ended up in Langmark. Now that's famous because that's where the first ever chlorine gas attack took place in 1915, I think it was. And whilst we were there, we had a tour guide, and she was explaining what happened during this gas attack. She explained that, you know, when the defending troops, I think the French and Algerian troops, saw this cl- these clouds of gas, yellow and green gas, rolling towards them, they weren't quite sure what the gas, what, what it was, what, what the clouds were. And when it began to engulf them, some of them threw themselves to the foot, the bottoms of the trenches and buried their faces in the soil. Others clambered out. And then as these gas attacks continued, they learned to protect themselves by soaking rags or cloths or handkerchiefs or whatever came to hand in water, which um, there's some sort of scientific sense in that because chlorine, it was chlorine gas that was uh, uh, that they're faced with, uh, chlorine does dissolve in water. And then I think the second or third gas attack with the Canadian troops, the officers suggested they soak their rags and cloths in urine. And once again, there's some scientific logic in that because chlorine does react with urine and it neutralizes it. Then after a while, eventually, this is, what, this is absolutely critical, because this is what sparked my interest in the chemistry of the First World War. Our tour guide said they then dipped their handkerchiefs 
and cross in buckets of chemicals. Since I've been a chemist all my professional life, I asked her, I said, what chemicals did they use? I was interested. And she said she didn't know. So when I got back to Basingstoke, my home in Basingstoke, I started to look around. So I wanted answers to this question. And I looked around. I soon found the answers. The answers were washing soda and, and uh, baking soda, sodium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate. But as I was finding, looking around for this, I started to ask my other, myself other questions like... Uh, what what is cordite? What is gun gunpowder? What is gunmetal? What is lidite? What is mustard gas? Because I'd met all these terms in my reading and heard all these terms on these TV documentaries that I'd, I'd watched. So I st- started to scout around on Wikipedia and Google and our local library, and I did find the answers to these questions. But there are lots of other questions, and I I thought for myself, how were these chemicals made, and who made them, and why were they used, and so on. So that's how it all started. Um, so I looked around for a book that would cover all these uh, topics, would answer all my questions. And the more I delved into it, the more questions I had. And I couldn't find one modern book that, that covered the chemistry of the First World War. So I thought, well, I'll write one myself. So I, I, I wrote one. In fact, in the end, I ended up writing two books on it, and I've written quite a few articles on the topic as well, and given quite a few talks. So that's how it all started. So why do you think your book on the chemists' war is important? Well, it was the chemists' war, and chemistry underpinned the war. I mean, it really determined the shape and duration of the war. When you think about it, the, as we all know, there was killing and devastation station on an industrial scale during the First World War. I think some 10 million troops men were killed and 5 or 6 million civilians were also killed and there was lots of devastation and so on. And that killing, industrial scale killing and devastation would not have been possible without industrial scale production of chemicals. When you think about it, most of the time when the opposing sides were engaged in battle, they're firing chemicals at one another. Um, most notably explosives but also poison gases and so on. And I've just made a few notes here if I may to give some examples of the extent of this uh, use of chemicals. During the Battle of Verdun in 1916, the French and German armies, uh, the, the battle lasted for 10 months, the, the French and German armies fired 23 million shells at each other. That works out at about 100 shells per minute, according to my calculation. And in the uh, Battle of the Somme in 1916 also, British and German armies fired something like 30 million shells at one, one another. That's 150 shells per minute. Now, each shell, each artillery round, required at least four sets of explosives. Uh, you need explosives in the fuse, and the uh, uh, it's, it's taken a high explosive shell, for example. The, percash, the fuse, uh, impact fuse, uh, nose of the shell, that required explosives. And then there was a payload in the shell, which, uh, if it's a high explosive shell, would be a high explosive like TNT. And then we had the cartridge, which contained the propellant, which fired the shell out of the gun barrel. That would be for the British Army, at least, typically cordite, which is a mixture of chemicals. And then we had the percussion cap. So when you fired the gun, you detonated this, what's called a primary explosive, typically mercury fulminate. So each shell, each and every one of these millions upon millions of shells contain at least four sets of explosives, sometimes many more explosives. And that required an immense amount of industrial production of of shells. Um, one thing I have some notes here. At the explosives factory in Queensferry in the north of Wales, at the peak of the war, they were manufacturing something like 500 tonnes of TNT and 250 tonnes of gun cotton every single week. And at Gretna, another explosive factory, they were making 800 tonnes of cordite every week. So it's an immense amount of chemical production. All these chemicals, explosives, uh, were made by using chemical processes and, and supervised by chemists. And that's just the explosives. Uh, the chemists, chemicals were also important 
in many other ways during the First World War. I mean, think of the poison gases, something like 48 different gases were developed for it during the First World War. They included choking agents like chlorine and phosgene, but the French used blood agents like cyanide, uh, vesicants, mustard gas, and, and so on. Then there were the metals of war. Me metals were produced, um, steel, bronze, brass, gunmetal, gun aluminium for the zeppelins, and so on, all produced by using chemical processes. Then we get onto the dyes. Um, it, when you think, I, I looked into my book, I found that there's something like 68 million soldiers fought in the First World War. Each one of those needed a uniform. The British wore khaki uniforms, the Germans filled grey uniforms. Th those uniforms had to be dyed using dyes, chemical dyes, which had to be produced. And then we had the health and safety aspects, the antiseptics, the anaesthetics, uh, and so on, the disinfectants and the medicines. So there was an immense amount of chemistry involved in the First World War, and that's why I wrote the book. And so what, what's the state of the British and German chemicals industry before the war, and what sort of play, role did they play in, in, in the industrial production of each country? Well, immense, immense. I mean, there's, because we had the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, a lot of discoveries in chemistry during, by both British and German and other chemists uh, in Europe and also the United States. The chemical industry essentially takes raw materials, natural, naturally occurring raw materials like coal, like wood, like salt from the sea or rock salt uh, in the mines in Cheshire, uh, minerals, potash and so on, and they turn them into useful products. And these products were used, um, for example, in agriculture as fertilizers for, fertilizers for making soaps and detergents, in the paper industry for printing inks, in textiles for dyes and so on, for explosives, making explosives not just for use in the war, but also um, for blasting and, and quarrying and, and so on. And then um, the, the medicines and everything. So, I mean, it, it is vast. Britain had its own chemical industry but it was, wasn't by far as strong as the German chemical industry by the beginning of the First World War. At the beginning of the First World War, Germany was employing 10 times as many chemists as Britain. Britain had really neglected the chemical industry during the 19th century, but Germany was preeminent, and uh, it paid its chemists much more, and it respected its chemists much more than the British did. So it played critical roles uh, before the war, but they were deficient. I mean, the, not only did they use their own raw materials, but Britain and Germany and the United States, for that, for that matter, had to import materials and chemicals. So they traded with one another to import chemicals. Britain, for example, uh, got its acetone for making cordite um, from wood that had its own forests and so on, but it imported a lot of the wood from North America, from Canada, from Germany and, and, and Austria as well. Germany relied on imports of nitrate minerals from South America, as did Britain, and uh, the United States relied on imports from Germany for um, potash, which is crucial in the cotton belt and agriculture for fertilizers, growing things, and lots of other reasons. Potash is a very important chemical that was used by everybody. So obviously once the war starts and each side imposes an economic blockade on each other, um, they're obviously starved of these uh, necessary chemicals. What impact did this have and what sort of measures did countries um, take to substitute the chemicals they had previously imported? Well, an immense impact. I've got several examples where I mentioned in my book, but let's take America for a start. It imported potash from Germany. G Germany was a great potash producer, but at the start of the war, because of the problems with trade and so on, Germany imposed an embargo on its potash, and they didn't allow the potash to be exported. And also, also of 
course, we had the British naval blockade. So virtually overnight, America ran short of potash, which was absolutely crucial for growing food and lots of other reasons. So I rapidly um, uh, find other ways of producing potash. It did so by going to Salt Lake and so on, and also trying to convert seaweed kelp, which contains uh, potassium compounds. Uh, uh, Germany had immense problems because it imported nitrates, potassium nitrate and sodium nitrate from South America. And because of the British naval blockade, it rapidly ran out of these nitrates. These nitrates were used to make nitric acid, which was essential for making nitro explosives like TNT, trinitrotoluene, uh, nitroglycerine, ammonium nitrate, and so on. Nitric acid was absolutely critical. So by the early by early 1915, Germany was in great danger of uh, running out of the raw materials needed to make explosives. And similarly, as I've just mentioned, uh, Britain was sh short of um, the acetone, the cordite, the propellant that was used for fire shells and bullets and so on. Uh, contains two components, nitroglycerine and gun color, nitrocellulose, petroleum jelly. But to make it, you need acetone. And acetone was typically uh, obtained by the distillation of wood, and it rapidly ran out of um, the acetone. So it had to find another way of doing that. And that's how some of the chemists got involved in producing more acetone. The other thing is that Germany was the sort of dominant force in chemistry at the beginning of the war. It was called the, the world's pharmacy. Britain imported as I think the United States did, 90% of its drugs, its medicines, and dyes from Germany. And, of course, that all stopped overnight when the war started. I was yeah. just going to ask something about the, the use of, um, of whaling, so I think that's quite a good example. Production of explosives in the war and the, the industrial-scale killing of people would not have been possible without the industrial-scale killing slaughter of whales. When whales were... And there were two great trading that, uh, whaling nations. They were Norway... Um, in Britain. And the whale oil, which was extracted from the whales, from the blubber of the whales, was used for a whole variety of purposes. It was used, you probably know, for um, protecting troops in, in the wet conditions for a trench foot, by rubbing the whale oil into the feet. It's used as rifle oil, it's used in trench stoves. But most importantly, it was used for the manufacture of soaps and detergents. And um, one of the byproducts of this manufacture was glycerin. And uh, so to make nitroglycerin, this is a component of a whole load of explosives, dynamite, gelignite, but also cordite, and the Germans used it and so on. You needed glycerin. So G Germany and Britain rely very heavily on the glycerin extracted from whale oil to, to make their explosives. But when the war started, Norway, was, which was neutral in the war, was um, exporting, I think, about 36% of its whale oil to Germany, which is entitled to do, being a neutral country. But Britain, another way, uh, nation was unhappy with this because it, Norway was supporting the German explosives industry. Britain had the advantage over Norway in that it supplied coal to Norway in the coal bunkering facilities in, in the southern oceans. So it threatened to stop providing coal for its whaling ships and so on unless Norway stopped selling its whale oil to Germany and, and uh, sold it at a much reduced price to Britain. So in some ways, Norway, a neutral country, supported Brit the British war effort in this respect. And can you tell me about outstanding chemists who made a critical contribution to their country's war effort? And the most important of all the chemists in the war was Fritz Haber, who many people have heard of. He was uh, he found a way of converting the nitrogen in air to, to ammonia. It's called the Fritz Haber, uh, the Haber sensor 
photosynthesis of ammonia. And that ammonia, which is uh, a nitrogen compound, could then be converted into nitric acid using another process developed by another German chemist called Wilhelm Oswald. And the nitric acid that could then be turned into nitro exposures like TNT, nitroglycerin, gun cotton, and so on. Uh, so that's how Germany solved its exposures problem in 1915 by turning to, it rapidly vamped up the production of uh, nitric acid using the harbour synthesis of ammonia and the, uh, and the Oswald process. Uh, the problem here was, for the Germans, is that uh, because nitric acid and the nitrates were important not just for exposure but also for agriculture for as a fertilizer they're in danger of running out of food by the end of the war and as we all know but one of the reasons why the war ended is that the germans were starving they couldn't produce enough food to feed their population so that was important for the, the germans um the for the acetone problem in britain the the guy who's the chemist who solved that problem uh, was a Russian. He became a naturalized British citizen with Heim Weizmann, and he found a way of converting uh, grain, maize, into acetone by, ferment by a fermentation process. And that process came to the attention of Lloyd George, who was, I think, Chancellor of the, of the Exchequer at the time, and also Winston Churchill, who was First Lord of the Admiralty. And they persuaded him to scale up the production of this. From, he started off with just a test tube scale production of acetone, but he rapidly scaled it up so they're producing sufficient acetone to make all the cordite needed by the British. Uh, if he hadn't been able to do that, then we might have run out of propellants uh, pretty soon after the beginning of the war. Uh, other famous people involved were Marie Curie in France. She, as you know, she won two Nobel Prizes, one in chemistry and one in physics. She developed, she'd worked on radioactive and um, discovered radioactive chemical elements and uh, she developed these portable x-ray machines which were then taken to the military field hospitals to x-ray wounded soldiers to look at the shrapnel in their legs and, and so on and so forth. My book also covers some of the famous chemists who actually died in action. One, well not chemists but scientists. One was Henry Moseley who did a lot of important work on the periodic table of chemical elements and most people would suggest that he would have won a Nobel Prize but he was killed by a bullet in the head at Gallipoli. Uh, Edward Harrison developed a British gas mask, made gas masks contain chemicals to prevent the gases, uh, to neutralize the, the gases. And he did a lot of work developing the British gas mask. Now, he died in the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918. And I also have a, a chapter on what I call fractured friendships in my book, because a lot of these chemists, Eminent chemists in Britain and Germany were great friends of each other before the war. Uh, the, the most notable example is uh, William Ramsey, Sir William Ramsey, who was a professor at University College London, a Scottish chemist, and he discovered inert, what's called inert gases like neon and did um, isolated helium. So, so he did a lot of work on that and won a Nobel Prize for it. And the German chemist Emil Fischer, uh, he won the second ever Nobel Prize in chemistry. And Fischer and Ramsey were great friends before the war. They used to visit each other. Uh, Ramsey took his doctorate in Germany. Fischer sent his son to Cambridge, his, his eldest son Hermann to um, Cambridge. The other, his two other sons died in the war. Fischer won the Nobel Prize for his work on organic chemistry. And they spoke each other's languages uh, fluently and could read German and English fluently. They were great friends. The families knew each other. But when the war broke out, they fell out with each other big time. And that was largely because of the Manifesto of 93. I don't know if you're familiar with that, the Manifesto of 93. 93 eminent scientists and people from the arts and cultural academicians and so on um, wrote a manifesto, which they published, 
accusing Britain and its allies of starting the war, saying that Germany wasn't at fault. And so on. It's a sort of propaganda document. Ramsey was outraged by this, and Fisher was one of the signatories to, to that. So there, that was a great problem, and, and also because of a lot of German chemists at the time in in um, Britain working in universities, and they were shunned and, um, and so on. So that's an interesting uh, part of the story. I was just wondering about how the war impacted on chemistry and chemists in Britain, given it had a relatively low status before the war. Did the war do a lot to revive interest and academic attention um, to, to the subject? It did. It brought women chemists into it. Uh, one of the things, uh, when the war started, uh, so Britain was importing 90% of its drugs, medicines, and antiseptics, and so on. So a bit like now with the current COVID uh, crisis, the British government co-opted university laboratories to to develop the drugs and, and so on, other chemicals, for the war effort to be taken to the front. And one of the... Um, famous chemist uh, at University College London, I think, or it could have been Imperial College, uh, was Martha Whiteley, and she led a team for developing, doing work on mustard gas and developing new chemicals, painkillers, for the, work, for the effort, uh, for the war effort. Then, uh, soon after um, the war ended, the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry was set up. I worked for that uh, organisation. That, I think that was established in 1919, um, and uh, I write a little bit about that. So there was a lot, and we learnt a lot of um, chemistry from it. Mustard gas, for example, uh, is, is fascinating. Mustard gas was introduced in 1917 by the Germans, but in fact mustard gas had been known, the, the chemical had been known since 1822, when it was discovered by a French chemist, and no further work was done on it uh, by a British chemist called Frederick Guthrie. But it wasn't until 1917 when French, British and uh, American chemists began to work together. So there's this international cooperation to work on mustard gas. This is 1917, so they produced mustard gas for the Allies. Out of that, uh, they noticed that the soldiers who died of mustard gas poisoning, the white blood cell counts were low. So they began to think, uh, suggest or uh, inquire whether this uh, chemical could be actually used for treating cancer for uh, lymphomas and so on. And in fact, it gave birth to chemotherapy, although that wasn't until many years later. So there were lots of immense developments from the chemistry. A lot of uh, chemists around the world were looking at mustard gas and so on as a potential medicine. And that's one of the important things I sort of bring out in both my books, is that the chemists and chemicals and so on could be used for good and for bad. And many of the chemicals that we use, we use... Uh, if you take something like uh, picric acid, which is lidite, that was used as a high explosive, but also used as an antiseptic and a dye and so on. And, and still, metals were used for killing people, but also for protection. Uh, one example is the steel of the Brody helmet. I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of the war, soldiers who went into battle were wearing uh, headgear, which is sort of soft headgear, you know, peak caps and, and, and so on. And it wasn't until 1915 that uh, Brody helmet was introduced, steel helmet. And that was made of hardened steel uh, using a good manganese steel. And of course, the manganese had to come, um, uh, it was extracted from minerals, manganese minerals and so on. That was important. So it just sparked a lot of interest in all sorts of chemistry and explosives, metals, chemical warfare agents. So the Lewisite, another chemical warfare agent, was developed by the Americans in 1918, but was never used although they threatened to use it. Yes, so 
essentially, and also it made Britain think about its chemical industry. It, it spurred on the chemical industry in Britain because it had been neglected before the war. And finally, Michael, where can people get your book from? It's available on Amazon, right? It's called The Chemist War, 1914 to 1918. It's aimed at the general reader. Uh, I've also written another book um, earlier on, on the same theme, which covers different aspects of the chemistry of the First World War. It's called Gas, Gas, Quick Boys. It's taken after Wilfred Owen's famous poem, Dolce e Decorum S, about chlorine gas poisoning. And it's called Gas, Gas, Quick Boys, How Chemistry Changed the First World War. And that was published by the History Press in 2009, I think. That's also available on Amazon. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.